It's tough to make new friends as an adult. That's where today's sponsor, Bumble BFF, comes in. The Women First Dating app now includes a friend-finding mode, too. Download Bumble on iOS or Android and switch to Bumble BFF mode within the app. Then fill out a profile to let your future besties know what you're all about. So I know, you know, we all live in an age of no new friends, uh, self-included. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I, I also, I love my friends very much, but they think I'm weird. Sometimes I like to do things that they don't want to do. And true, true, true. No, it would be nice. See, it would be nice if I was able to find somebody who would like to engage in my weird activities with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, Kia's not going to watch American Horror Story with me, so I got to find somebody correct. who will. That so, to learn more, head to bubble.com forward slash grown. That's B U M B L E dot com slash grown. I don't want to be with you, put that on everything I own. Mm, mm, mm. I can't believe I stayed around that, that damn long. That gasp for air. <laughs> if I never see you again, I won't be mad at all. Mm, <laughs> mm, 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 oh, God. Because I believe that you're my downfall because you did me wrong <laughs> you did me wrong wrong i let you what you knew you ran out of my life and now i'm so through with you is that avant yes <laughs> that is such an odd place to start the song i like that verse it's funny to me oh my God. i don't want to be with you <laughs> Has anybody checked on Avant lately? I seen him. I seen him back in like 2009 at an outside concert with Jeffrey Osborne. Oh, well, God bless. Praise the Lord, niggas. Praise the Lord, niggas. (laughs) Welcome back to Getting Grown with Jade and Kia. I'm Kia. I'm Jade, and we're back to talk about adulting: the good, the bad, the ugly, the test. The trials, the twists, the turns, the temptations, and the taxes of being a real live adult in the year of our Lord 2018. That's right. Yeah, man. What's <laughs> up, sis? <laughs> Nothing much. Uh, coming back off of another airplane. And um, the, I guess, you know, one of the highlights of all of this travel, uh, in, you know, because travel is the ghetto, but all of the all i think the highlight is i get to see your face so much i've seen oh your gosh. face so so much we're so like best friends huh i said like, we're like best friends i know but <laughs> but anyway no nah, it was cool nashville was a good 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 time um shout out shout to out everybody to shout out to nashville came through to the pop-up uh you guys really showed a whole lot of love and it was a pleasure meeting all of you and came through and bought up all our friends stuff so i can't be mad at it i'm i'm i'll I'll go back to nashville it ain't no problem with me it ain't no problem it ain't no problem (laughs) i want to thank everyone for not disclosing uh, my whereabouts to my mother or any other member of my family while we were there we had an awesome time it wasn't that i didn't want to kick it with them it was just such a quick turnaround like i was in nashville for probably about 11 hours and i didn't want to tell my mom that because she would be trying to make moves um, yes yes she would and, yes <laughs> and I, I just couldn't have her 
sitting up in the Tennessee Performing Arts Center watching us carry on. Um, well, I'm hype. But yeah, it was a good time. And I was just so... I was just so... Uh, grateful for how well received like you know y'all was really excited to see me and jay and that made me feel real good yo did they show so much love i just feel like i'm the least cool of all of my cool friends so oh, when y'all was excited to see me i was just like oh guys thank you you're so funny you're stupid <laughs> so much fun. no they nashville showed all the love like you know what I'm saying? Didn't nobody throw no tomatoes. You know what I'm saying? I thought it was going to be maybe some crickets. Because, you know, the read is the read. You know what I'm saying? But, like. The read is the read, man. But y'all y'all showed us mad love. Did. We, we appreciated it. And we actually, I actually had an awesome time. Like, it was an amazing show. Mm -hmm. Fury and Crystal did an awesome job. And the vibe in the room was right. The audience was an awesome audience. It was cool. So, definitely, we will be back. Um, in the 615 to kick it and carry on with you all, hopefully in the very near future. Yeah, you guys definitely put uh, yourselves on our radar. So Yeah, man. But also, I will say that the white people in Nashville scare me. Oh and not God. much does. Why are we going to do this? Because um, <laughs> I, I was out of my element. We went out to eat and I was like, oh, no, nah, nigga. Like, these people don't even wear coats and it's 45 degrees outside. Yeah. Nashville is a red state in every in every uh, flashing lights red. I mean, it's it's like the, any any way that you can think <laughs> that Nashville is a red state. It is a red state. Nashville is a, is the where I was when the lady asked me what Milanin was. Oh yeah, no, see that makes sense. That's right, right on brand. So right on, <laughs> right on task. Um, so yeah, there. I will say that gentrification is a thing in every single city. Of America, I can um, tell. And it's certainly a thing in Nashville, uh, and I mean that's all really that we can say about. Well, that. Amazon is putting one of their headquarters there, so clearly, really, yeah, I didn't know that they're putting one in Nashville, I believe, one in DC, and then one in Long Island City. Why are you bringing more of them here? Oh dear, <laughs> one is going to be. It's going to be in Crystal City. It's going to be in Virginia, but yeah, yeah in the Virginia. DMV. Yep. But yeah, I mean, Amazon got money to throw around. And if there are, I mean, I would, I guess I'm hopeful. <sighs> Very hopeful. Then put your, yeah. put your headquarters in Oregon. Like, don't <laughs> put any more here. We already have nowhere to live. Well, I was going to say that I'm hopeful that, you know, uh, Amazon headquarters in Nashville would also mean that there would be more job opportunities for people of color who live in that city as well. Hope. So that's what I'm, I'm going to hope. Um, but yeah, while we're here... Um, let me very quickly send a very big thank you and a shout out to the women who came to kick it with me at the Hey Sis meetup at the Ash Conference this year. Aww. You guys exceeded my expectations. It was so awesome to come and hang out with all with you. I made it my business to come and speak to everyone that was there. It was awesome to meet and engage with you. Thank you all for signing up um, for the mailing list. And we will certainly, certainly be in touch with Next Steps as we plan for our formal gathering at the Ash Conference in 2019, which will be held, I believe, in Portland, Oregon. So we will definitely need to find space and community for us in Portland, Oregon, if you know what I mean. But, <laughs> um, you know, I shout out. I just want to shout y'all out and thank y'all for coming. Thanks to uh, my partners, uh, Brittany from um, Brittany Joan from Cider uh, Sister. Um, uh, Layla and Davida from Sister PhD and Ashley from the School in Life podcast. You guys are awesome to work with. I can't wait to continue, uh, you know, 
bringing the vision to to pass um, in terms of making a space for us to be us at the Ash Conference is going to be dope. Um, And shout out to everyone who was just at the conference, male and female, who pulled me to the side and and shared your your appreciation and thanks and support for the show. You guys did my heart really, really good to know that what we're doing is being received and being received by the persons and the people who are, you know, who I feel like I represent. Like, you know, that's my academic home is with Ash. So with y'all, you know, supporting me and being supportive of the show it really was validating in ways that I didn't know that I needed to be validated so just just know from my heart that I really appreciate all the love that getting grown got you got mad love Jay we just we just really had an awesome time in Tampa and I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys again the smarts like me oh my god you're crazy a little bit oh well Shout out to you guys for showing love to getting grown and shout out for supporting my sister because I don't know she's crazy and she thinks five people will be about to show up to her event. I and do. And we know <laughs> that it's going to be much different than that. So shout out to you guys for validating me <laughs> in, 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 my, in my good solid I told you so. Oh my God. Anyway, can we move forward please? <laughs> yes, because we have lots of trash. Oh dear God. <laughs> Woo, the trash is heavy this week, which makes sense. It's Thanksgiving week. There's lots of scraps people are cooking. So first and foremost, I never thought I would mention this person in a trash segment, but this warrants us talking about Tekashi69 is facing 17 counts of federal charges. (laughs) This nigga has a 17-count oh indictment gosh. against him, um, including uh, racketeering charges, conspiracy, firearm offenses, murder. Uh, so, murder. Him and, yeah. So him and his crew apparently like they hit, they ordered hits on you know rival gang members because apparently they're part of this blood organization, and so they ordered hits on their opponents. And, you know, because they were they were trying to protect their business of the pharmaceutical sorts. Mm. And so they have uh, charges that carry a possible maximum sentence of life in prison, according to the U.S. attorney's office. So Mm. uh, that's that. Um, And I'm not surprised. Um, Oh, God, more trash, more super heavy trash. Black China has a skin lightening cream. What? For $250 called White Nicious. What? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> it's white and it's nicious. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that Black China bleaches. Well, once I started looking, it looks like she does, but I can't say for sure. I don't know if she's just endorsing this or if she actually does it. I'm not going to make up What the hell is a white nicious? That's not even a word. <laughs> it's her $250 nah, that's jar. Know that she is using controlled substances. Mm-hmm. This is not even she's like... sniffing that like good old white nicious. absolutely <laughs> suffering from a substance abuse issue. If yeah. she believes that it's called people white are nicious. going... 
to spend their money on something that is called white niches. That is the most foolish thing I've ever heard. Two hundred and fifty dollars nah, on nah, a the answer is no. on a Swartsky, however the fuck you pronounce that, crystallized jar. No, that's dumb. <laughs> I don't even have, I'm not even going to dignify that with much more than that. Now, she claims Mm -mm. that it's for hyperpigmentation. Girl, don't nobody want to hear that. Right. You know, that's what the, you know, the niggas love to go to a hyperpigmentation or a revitiligo. But regardless, ain't nobody about to buy your $250 jar of Ambien. Becoming is the fastest selling book of 2018, according to Barnes & Noble. I got mine. I am getting mine. (laughs) <laughs> i'm getting mine ready. now that i remember that it was out as soon as it came never out ready ain't never ready i know i'm nope. always late but guess what i'm always there mm. so are you okay yeah i am All right. we gotta bring you know what we gotta bring back the the book club we do <laughs> we gotta bring we back the, do. we gotta bring back the book club we, we got we got real writing. booked and busy you know sorry if we're you know we don't want to bother you guys too much with the booked and busy but we got a little booked and busy and it got a little hard to to be consistent with the book club, but uh, I definitely want to bring it back. Anyway, um, oh, this was so, this just warmed my heart. A California volleyball team raised money and gift cards and donations and uh, bought brand new uniforms and knee pads for the opposing team who Aww. lost most everything in the wildfire. That's what's up. So they came together and raised over $16,000 That's in amazing. cash and gift cards and donations. And then the girls wanted to play the game, even though most of them had lost everything. Some of them were even going to write their numbers on a piece on a T-shirt with a Sharpie. And they showed up and they got uniforms and knee pads. And That's dope. So I thought that was beautiful. I had to I had to mention it. Um, back to the trash. Okay. <laughs> Safari. <laughs> have you seen this new hair i have not thank god i will say that that young man makes me laugh okay he tickles me and he was speaking patois after taking his hair out of a fresh doobie wrap minus the bobby pin marks <laughs> so was wait looking, what it was luxurious yes my nigga got my nigga got a real nice um doobie no he doesn't does go look on the shade room I actually will not. I don't have any need for that. But why would he do that? Because it's safari. <laughs> I'm going to let y'all have every bit Why of does that, safari safari? I don't know. That is none of my business. So y'all can have every ounce of that. And then lastly, I, I, this is the perfect way to close out the trash. And I had to put this story in there. Oh, my God. I can only imagine. A black man in New Orleans threatened to blow up a bathroom. I saw this. They said it had nothing to do with the bomb. Please allow me to just read a few lines from this article um, that literally took me down. (laughs) Toilet humor is in everyone's cup of tea, but people don't usually get arrested for it. Such was not the case last Sunday. Blah, 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 blah. Even though the customer claimed he merely meant he was going to blow up the bathroom by evacuating his bowels with extreme oh, gusto. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. That's enough. It's not. <laughs> oh, my God. 
I am down. This is the most ridiculous story, but I, it just really was very refreshing. <laughs> well, I'm glad that it brought you so much joy. It really truly. did. Really, really did. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. Let us do that. Shout out. That would be amazing. My sister's popping right now. Like. All right, boys and girls, it's time to shout out our sisters. Um, and we are excited to do it. Again, all right, the, we've got an email from a listener by the name of um, Valeria or Valeria. I don't know. Valeria, Valeria. Rod- Valeria Rodriguez. She writes, greetings, Jade and greetings. I'm sorry, I can read. Greetings, <coughs> Jade and Kia. I would like to share the Shine in All Shades adult coloring book created and self-published by Afro-Latina artists. Uh, Valeria Rodriguez, hand-drawn illustrations paired with affirmations and quotes by women of color. This creative book caters to the mental wellness, varying expressions, and backgrounds of women of, Af- of the African diaspora. Note, it's suitable for all women in developing youth, um, but it does feature um, women of the African diaspora. For a long time, art has been an escape from depression and anxiety. In the last couple of years, I've challenged myself to step out of my comfort zone and create not only through uh, through sadness, um, creating this book has been uh, life changing, and I want to share dopeness with our people. I will be creating more books with different themes while always celebrating and uplifting people of color. Valeria also shared a little bit about herself. She is the owner of VR hmm, Art. I don't want, VR Art LLC, a multidiscipline design and consulting entity based out of St. Louis, Missouri. As a graphic designer by trade and an artist at heart, Valeria uses multiple mediums of art as a tool to manage her anxiety and to share positivity with all she encounters. Oh, I love that. She leaves her website information and her Instagram, which we will undoubtedly leave in the description box. Absolutely. And I'm excited, you know, as as an avid adult colorer, I, I am really excited to hear about this. Um, and very proud of Valeria for doing this um and targeting the needs experiences and perspectives of women of uh african descent um there's always going to be room for that as far as i'm concerned so thank you so much for sharing your art with us valeria and we're so happy to share it with everyone else you guys be sure to check out shine in all shades adult coloring book by visiting shineinallshades.com or shine in all shades on instagram Yes, and I I was super excited to see this. I can't wait to get my copy so that I can go in with my Prismacolors because I, too, love to color. Now, Kia loves to color to the point where she colors on her iPad. She just be coloring. Don't judge me. I'm not judging at all. I actually love to color, but I'm super picky, and I really like Prismacolors, <laughs> and I need, a new pre- I need a new set. But shout out to Valeria. Make sure you guys get a copy. We'll make sure we put all the information in the description box. We also wanted to do one more quick shout out because if what, what like what do you even do this for if you can't shout out your actual sisters? So our good sis Shariel Basden, who is out of Atlanta, um, said that that anybody who is in the Atlanta area can get ten dollars off any braided style. So you can check out her Instagram, Hair by Shari B, which we will post in the uh, description box as well. Her scheduling link is there. Let me tell you all about Shari's blessed hands. 
she has been doing my hair for at least 12 years. <laughs> Every time I see her, she does something to my head. Um, she braids like nobody I've seen before. And she's quick, but she's just she's good. She's really, really good. She braids our sister, Nikki. She braids her hair every time we get together because Nikki has a mane. And so Shari puts that down into two beautiful plaits and it's just her hands are blessed. So we'll make sure we put all the information in the description box. Um, if you're in the Atlanta area, you can get $10 off if you mention getting grown. Absolutely. So let's move on um, to the kitchen table, right? Yes. Okay, bet. Sometimes the smallest changes can have the biggest benefits. An easy change that your body will thank you for, switching to aluminum-free coconut deodorant from today's sponsor, Kapari. Kapari's coconut deodorant is an aluminum-free vegan deodorant. It's also free of silicones, sulfates, parabens, GMOs, and baking soda, so it's great for sensitive skin. Kapari fights odor with plant-based actives such as sage oil and coconut oil, and it doesn't leave behind a sticky white residue, just the sweet, subtle scent of fresh coconut milk. And it outlasts your longest days. This is Kapari's number one selling product. They can barely keep it in stock. They also offer a deodorant subscription, so you just choose how often you want to receive it, and they'll ship it straight to the house automatically for free, so you never run out of deodorant again. Uh, Kapari also offers a money-back guarantee, so there's no reason not to try it today. So everybody knows that, you know, I love to smell good. I love mm -hmm. Kapari because I literally walk around smelling like a pina colada. And all mm -hmm. the boys be like, what is that? What are you wearing? What is that? What is that? And it's not, you know, it's not a uh, perfume. It's just my deodorant. It's so my even armpits, bae. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? Just... Get your life. And even if I if if I do sweat, even just a little bit, then my sweat also has the essence of coconut. Isn't that just a, a refreshing little, um, I mean, just to brighten up your day out here I'm smelling saying, like. I mean, yes. Kia is Tahitian dry. treat. Kia is dry. I am <laughs> I a sweater. Am. And I use Kapari as well. And let me tell you, I'm literally like a walking Vita Coco. It is wonderful. I do not stink, though. <laughs> I smell amazing. <laughs> you smell amazing. Like a walking Vita Coco. You, that was, that's an amazing analogy. But yes, go to KapariBeauty.com slash grown to make the safe switch today. And you can save five whole dollars off your first order when you subscribe. Kapari got five on it. So that's Kapari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash grown. KapariBeauty.com slash grown. All right, so this week's kitchen table is a little bit different in nature, but the content will remain um, awesome. I'm if excited. I do, if I do say so myself. So um, I had the opportunity while at the ASH conference to sit down with three amazing women doing amazing work across the country, um, targeting um, the needs and experiences and... The needs and experiences of, of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated black girls and black women. Um, this is something, an issue that's been near and dear to my heart uh, for quite some time now. Mm -hmm. But um, just, you know, recognizing that just like every other societal entity, the implications of systemic racism and sexism and just pure hate and wickedness oftentimes impact women of color more severely than they impact other populations. And 
that requires us to be diligent about being attentive to these needs and making inroads for supporting our sisters Mm -hmm. and women and girls who are, who have, you know, been in this prison system or are still in the prison system, you know, are also included in that as well. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity, there was a forum at the conference that targeted, I mean, that focused on illuminating uh, issues of educational attainment for these particular popu- for this particular population, and you know it featured a, a, a beautiful panel of women who have been working in this area um, for quite some time. And I got an opportunity to speak to three of them um, in an interview just after the panel, and we had an awesome conversation um, that ranged from everything from the misconceptions of um, incarcerated women, incarcerated populations, all the way up to ways in which we can be a part of supporting um, and advocating for these women who, you know, many of many of whom are victims of an unfair and unjust system and are in dire need of our attention and support. So the women will introduce themselves. Their, their contact information will be in the description box. I'm really excited about you guys hearing this conversation. I enjoyed having it. Thanks again to Dr. Lori Patton Davis and the ASH Conference. Um, for allowing Getting Grown to be a part in this way. And, you know, we will continue to do our best to make sure that you guys are getting, you know, interesting, compelling content that's going to, you know, improve the ways that we all kind of think and live and exist in the world. Because that's what Getting Grown is all about, getting new perspective, new information, and acting on it in ways that will improve our lives and the lives of the people that we care about. So um, you guys stay tuned for this awesome conversation. Be sure to jump in the comments. Let us know what your thoughts are. And um, yeah. Absolutely. I'm super excited about it. So uh, make sure you guys definitely tune in for this very special Kitchen Table Talk. Enjoy. What up, what up, what up, y'all? It's Kia, and I'm on the road this week um, traveling with the Association for the Study of Higher Education Conference because y'all know I'm a nerd and I type real fast for a living. Um, But I'm here at the conference this week um, in Tampa, Florida, and I had an awesome opportunity today to attend a forum, a town hall on college attainment for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls of color um, brought to us um, by, you know, all of our lovely sponsors um, that assisted, but, you know, it's really the brainchild of the current president of uh, ASH, uh, Lori Patton Davis. You all remember that she was on the show back in April, and we talked about this. So today is the day, and today it happened, and I got the opportunity to, to hang out with some awesome black women doing some amazing things throughout the country, and I wanted to share them and their work with you. So I'm going to pass the mic to the left-hand side and um, allow these women to introduce themselves and their work. And then we'll get into uh, a meaty little conversation about a super, super important um, uh, priority, national priority, in my, in my opinion. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you, Takia, for inviting all of us here. My name is Aaron Corbett, Dr. Aaron Corbett, to be precise. Um, I'm a senior research analyst at the Institute for Higher Ed Policy in Washington, D.C. That is what I do by day, by night, and every other free moment. Um, I am the chief executive officer of the Second Chance Educational Alliance in Hartford, Connecticut. And now I'm going to pass the mic. Yo, yo, this is Dr. Bria <laughs> Willingham. <laughs> 
You know, you get the mic, you got to take your shot, right? Uh, this is Dr. Bria Willingham, and I am a criminal justice professor at SUNY Plattsburgh. Hey, everyone. My name is Sarita Stab Martin. I have CLS behind my last name because they're making me feel some type of way. That means <laughs> clinical laboratory scientist. So that's, that was my old job. <laughs> now I'm the executive director of Operation Restoration in New Orleans. It's an organization that I founded to help incarcerated, informed incarcerated women and girls transition into society, specifically focusing on education and eliminating barriers. And I'm excited to be here with Kia today. So I'm ready to talk. Sweet, 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 sweet. Okay. So, um, Many of our listeners may or may not know or understand what the needs and concerns and perspectives and lived experiences of formerly incarcerated um, and incarcerated black women are. So can you just uh, just shed some light? How can we um, better understand uh, these women um, in order to position ourselves to be, you know, in, in community with them and sistership and support with them? Anybody who wants to go first? This is Sarita, so I'll take that question. Um, at the age, when I was 19, I went to prison for 10 years. I went in at 19 and I got out at 29. And after prison, I was stuck with the task of trying to obtain an education. Um, it was really hard. There were a lot of barriers set in place. I was not allowed the opportunity to go to college because of my background. And one thing that I think that all of us in this community as black women need to know is that all of us have had some type of uh, experience with someone who's incarcerated, whether it's someone you know, someone in your community, a family member, a cousin, you know, the third cousin way down the line that don't nobody want to talk about, or the fifth cousin down the line who is away at college, that's what everybody is telling their kids, but they're really in prison. Um, I think that we all have those stories and we know about it, but it's time um, for us as black women because just like men, when you think about mass incarceration, you always think about black men. Um, women are often a forgotten population in everything, so we don't think about women and girls who have been directly impacted by the justice system. And it's time for us to start remembering women who look like us and have been through the same traumas um, that we've been through because statistically speaking, we know that 90% of women who are incarcerated have had some type of trauma, and that's only like the reported ones that we know about. So um, I think we just have a responsibility to start talking about it and talking about another issue that really impacts our community as African-American women. All right, this is Bria, and um, to piggyback off of that, I think it's also important that we see these women as women, as people, as, and to humanize them because too often um, they are dehumanized, and that's just the, the, the way of the privileged masses to um, not have to deal with them. You know, with women especially, and all incarcerated people in general, once they are incarcerated, then it's an out of sight, out of mind type of mentality when the reality is they are still part of our community because of the families that they leave behind. And so we, we, need, to, um, we need to humanize them and, and talk about them as people, as the people they are, as the mothers, the sisters, and cousins, and so on and so forth, because they matter. Thank you guys so much. So given that, I mean, just maybe we can zoom out a little bit and talk about what some of the broader implications or impacts of incarceration are on society. Because um, I think that that is a piece of the conversation that's often, you know, 
left un, unsaid or we, that goes undiscussed. We don't really talk about it. It's kind of like, you know, incarcerated persons are where they are and, you know, we're separated from them. So we don't think about them in ways, you know, in relation to us and how we live our lives. So um, is there anything that, you know, we, we could we could stand to learn about what the broader impacts and implications of incarceration are might be? This is Aaron. I think that we have to recognize that there are significant portions of particular communities that have been disproportionately impacted um, that are incarcerated. So if we're looking at over 2 million people who are in custody, that's over 2 million people who are not with their families, who are not in their communities, who are not being able to participate in life to the fullest extent. We also have to remember that there are over 4 million people who are under some form of carceral supervision. And so broadening, I think, the conversation to, to folks who are just as impacted, so those in custody, but those also outside, but still under some sort of supervision, is also important because those folks are impacted as well. So this conversation is about to take a turn, I can see. So let me just go on and veer off the cliff, right? This is Cerrito. So I don't, I don't want to have anybody mistaken with what I'm going to say. I just, let me preface it with that. The broader implications are, and we're just going to be honest, um, you know, society, history has taught us that um, the institution, whether you identify that as white men, white people, whatever the case might be, have historically had a vested interest in killing off black people. And whether that's physically killing them off, silencing their voices, making them irrelevant, the country as a whole has been invested. And I always call it the eradication of black people, right? Um, so this is just another avenue or another tactic of making sure that that happens. With women specifically, whether you're a black woman, a Latino woman, white woman, you know, we never get to speak about ourselves. We're always drawn in with, oh, you know, the kids and the mom, or oh, the woman who takes care of her parents, or the woman who takes care of her husband, but you never focus on the woman, right? Themselves, alone, standalone. And I think a lot of times women have faced unspeakable, most of the women that I come into contact with have faced unspeakable levels of trauma. and it never gets dealt with. And if you are incarcerating women based on trauma and things that they have faced, because really that's what we're doing, we're starting to criminalize trauma, right? Um, and we're never treating the issues or whatever it was that the trauma, the root of the trauma, and then you're sending these women back out into the community to raise kids, right? So um, what it's doing on a broader scale is broken women are raising broken children who then turn into people who are in the system once again. We know the statistics state that if a person goes to prison, the likelihood of their child going to prison increases tenfold, right? So for me, what it is is really like not sitting down saying the criminal justice system is broken, it's, you know, it needs to be fixed. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. We have some students that I work with on Tulane's campus who had a really like amazing analogy to me, and it was like two weeks ago, and I was just like, I never even thought about it like this. So they drew a correlation to how we incarcerate people, the actual physical space that we incarcerate them in, to slave ships. 
and how they're built in the same manner of control. Mm -hmm. So the slave ships were built in compartments to be able to hold people, to control mass amount of people with little supervision mm -hmm. and schematically how that was done. Right. And then they drew it to how we incarcerate people in the compartments, in the small areas that we place people in, right? So for me, it's not really, I guess what frustrates me the most is just not calling it what it is. And it's like this, the institution has came for the men and now they're coming for the women. And pretty soon they're going to be coming for the kids, which we know they're already coming for the children. But it's going to increase once the women are out of the way because women are the backbone of the community. And when you take the backbone of the community out of the community, you have effectively destroyed the community. Um, I don't know how I'm going to follow that exactly. but <laughs> She said a whole word and then... And then an extra paragraph, right? <laughs> but I, I think I, I will add on to that. Um, and so given all of that context, then when you have uh, certain researchers who don't look like us, <laughs> who come into the space and then they, and, and I, I think it, they start to, um, what's the word? Um, Yes, thank you. You know, women in prison, and, um, and and you already know what they think about black women in general. And then, so you have these have the women uh, in in prison, and so they they come in and they want to they want to view them. They want to you know um, like they're like they're animals in a zoo. And and so I think it as researchers, it is so especially and particularly for us as black women researchers. It's important for us to um, uh, to really tell these stories for those women who aren't able to for whatever reason. Because if we leave it up to them, since they like to call us them, if we leave it up to them to tell these stories, then these stories are not going to get told accurately. So I think that's a huge responsibility on our part. Absolutely. Y'all know I got real amped about this <laughs> at the panel because I want to tie it all together. I want to tie in this this piece of looking at the incarcerated woman as an individual, as a unit of herself. And I want to tie it into the ways in which we research people who are incarcerated. And there are some people who believe that the medical model of experimentation is the appropriate way to look at the impact of something like higher education in prison. And so what they will do is they will do something like, I don't know, a randomized control trial and they will deny people access to education who are incarcerated in the name of having a control group and in the name of being able to minimize selection bias and in the name of all of these other things that ultimately preclude individuals from accessing education. When the reality is there is no need to even try to establish a causal inference between education and an outcome because any person with half of a brain who studies higher education knows that the best you can do in any sort of realistic context is establish the strength and direction of relationships. So you can look at a correlation between education and something else, but education does not cause one thing or another. There are far too many um, confounding variables, far too many collateral consequences, far too many 
facility-specific circumstances that you're not accounting for, far too many state-specific circumstances that you're not accounting for, far too many family circumstances that you're not accounting for that you just miss in this model because you're trying to do the gold standard and you want to treat people like lab rats. When there are perfectly solid quasi-experimental designs that allow you to statistically create control groups, to look at information in retrospect, to find the strength and direction of relationships between education and what, and between anything, really, because that's what these things are designed to do. And so I just want us, us as researchers, to really be intentional about what we are, the questions we are asking, first of all, make sure that those are appropriate. We need to be careful in how we design anything to analyze anything. Because if we are looking at incarcerated folks as just test subjects, right. then we've already messed up. Right. Right. Sarita, I see you taking notes over there on the side. I'm gonna pass the mic, you wanna pass the mic? Oh. <laughs> well, I was gonna just kind of plug, you know, also that uh, numbers tell a story, statistics tell a story, but they often don't tell the whole story. So we often also should be cautioned against looking at these uh, this phenomena quantitatively, like solely. And there are, you know, just as sound and just as rigorous, scholarly sound quali uh, qualitative methodologies that will also get at um, you know the stories of these women and empower them to tell their own stories, which was what. What was the next question that I wanted to kind of get to? Just kind of asking, what are the ways that since the narrative about this population and Black women in general, but since the narrative about um, you know marginalized populations are often told through the lens of um, white people or <laughs> power and privilege, um, what are ways that we can create spaces where we can tell our own stories? So that's actually an awesome question, and it will tie in everything I've been over here like furiously scribbling. I'm like, oh, I need to say this. So first of all, and not coming across, and I guess in a way that I want to be like controversial, but on the same time, it's like whatever. I don't give a shit. But like us as Black women, so I'm calling our Black women, right? So okay, growing up, I always tell a story about how I always wanted to be involved in sports, right? Um, I wanted to be the first female head coach in the NFL. Like, I love football. You know, it was just everything. Anybody who knows me knows I love sports. But I saw Pam Oliver. She was my representation on TV of black women. And I made a comment. I said, uh, I was like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to take her job, you know? And my mom was like, why would you want to take her job? Why would you not want to work with her, right? And in my mind at that time as a child, I was like, I mean, okay, you're right. I could work with her. It's not a big deal. I just said I wanted to do what she wanted, what she was doing. But as I got older and I started working in spaces with black women, what I realized is that society has taught us there's only space for one. Right. You know, our visuals on TV is only space for one. So when we, <laughs> when we look at things, we're looking at it in a space that we're automatically in competition with our sisters because there's only space for one. So first, us as black women, we have to shatter that myth. There's not space for one, there's space for as many of us that we could fit in the room, and we need to open the door and bring other sisters in with us. So that was number one. Number two, 
this thing about statistics and research and data and all of this, I'm a scientist by nature, but I'm probably not the traditional scientist. I look at it like in the hospital, you know, I sat down and I learned, I work in a lab, I'm a medical technologist, I interpret lab results and things of that sort. Um, but I look at it like the population that we see in the hospital, it's always the outliers. So you have this 95 percentile, the normal range, and this is what it's supposed to look like, right? But if they weren't sick, they wouldn't be at the hospital. So they're not going to fall in that traditional 95%. So when I look at incarceration, and I think about that as well, we can't apply normal research and normal statistics to the outliers. Because people who are incarcerated have those factors that have affected them that you can't quantify. Right. So instead of this gold standard that you mentioned earlier that we utilize. Yeah, she had air quotations. Y'all can't see them. You know, you also have to go back and think about, like, who created that gold standard? So we're trying to do research in a standard that was never meant for us any damn way. So us, <laughs> us. As black women, we have a responsibility to each other to create our own standards, to publish our own work, support each other in that process, in that method, and then our stories will be told in the way that they need to. Well, let me rephrase that. Our stories will be broadcast in the manner that they need to be broadcast in because what we don't need to do is tell stories for other people. You need to allow people to tell their own stories, create the platform so they can articulate whatever it is that has been ailing them. Um, and people even also feel to realize that inside of prison, it's the same hierarchy as outside of prison. So when I was incarcerated, the white women had the better living quarters, better jobs, and black women, black and brown women, because I can't forget my brown folks out here in, in, in the world, in the struggle, even though sometimes they act like they're they not a part of us. Society, society didn't told them a little different, but they haven't accepted it yet. You know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. Yes, they subscribing. I'm, I'm gonna say a little bit more than subscribing. <laughs> Which is they, they Jim Jones some of the asses. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so for me, it's about making sure that you recognize that all of the systems in place. I, I think people in academia suffer with that a lot of times. Is you try to function in the confines of something that's set up when it wasn't set up for you anyway. So you are trying to create things that fit into this <laughs> framework that was set up without you in mind. Because we could even go like institutions were set up for to to educate white men. Yes. It wasn't even set up to educate women at all. And they have not done anything different other than accept you into the institution. But they've made no um, concessions. They've made no uh, adjustments to say, OK, we're going to educate people outside of just white men. So I think that, that, for me, that's what it all boils down to. And it starts with, it's like, I don't think inside the box, you know? Um, we were taught that you have to be inside of this box, but if you just shatter that box and you start wherever you want to be, you know, the, the sky's the limit, literally. And uh, I also think that it is um, that for us, we need to be hypervigilant all the time about creating these spaces, recognizing where our voices are missing and then insert our voices any which way we can, it doesn't matter. It just does not matter. So, I mean, for instance, for me, I, I teach at a PWI. Um, and so, 
Uh, <laughs> predominantly white institution. Yes, yeah. Also known as the plantations, as I like to call it, because let's just keep it real, right? It's, it's, an, academic, it's an academic plantation. That's what it is. And so as, a, as the only black woman professor at this PWI, I ain't lying. Um, <laughs> um, when I walk into a classroom and, and the majority of my students uh, do not look like me, then I have to make sure that they get an accurate picture of how the system, the criminal justice system, impacts African Americans primarily um, and all people of color. And I get pushback when I do that, but there is, as I explained to the students, there is no way you can go through a criminal justice program, although I know some of them do in, in other places, there's no way you can go through a criminal justice program and not understand how people of color are impacted because when it comes to criminal justice, people of color are the system. <laughs> All right, and so, and, and when I got there, there, there was no class on women in the criminal justice system. So I created one, and I've been teaching it for the last five years that I've been there. So again, it's all about finding, you know, just creating those spaces, and, and it's, it's our duty. Like, we have to be hypervigilant about that. Um, so I'm going to ask one question, and then I'm going to, like, change gears um, a little bit. I want to know, given given what we're, our conversation about ways that we can be involved and engage, in ways that we can be vigilant about ensuring that you know the stories of these women are broadcast appropriately. Um, I want to talk to each of you about the work that you're doing through your organizations, through your programs, um, and you know how getting grown listeners might you know support or you know just learn more about or spread the word or you know however however. How can we be down? <laughs> we just pass it around, pass it around. Um, so a couple of things. So at IHEP, we have a... Oh, I'm sorry. I had said it earlier. The Institute for Higher Education Policy. I said that in my introduction. <laughs> um, you can find us at www.ihab.org. Uh, so we have a, a, a policy pillar, a priority policy pillar um, around this kind, of, this kind of broader idea of post-secondary justice. So not only looking at program quality, for higher ed and prison programs, but also looking at and participating in conversations around the various barriers and things for formerly incarcerated folks, et cetera. Um, and so we have recently started a project about key performance indicators for higher ed and prison programs. Um, we have been generously funded by the Great Lakes Foundation, which is, uh, they have changed their name to Ascendium. And so we are looking at two programs, one in Indiana, which is the Holy Cross and Notre Dame collaboration under the Bard Consortium um, called the Moreau College Initiative. And then we are looking at the University of Iowa Liberal Arts Beyond Bars program out in Iowa. And so that is a project that is happening that we spent a week in Indiana and a week in Iowa talking to primarily students um, to get a sense of what they thought a quality program was. You know, a lot of 
policy, education policy, higher ed policy happens in the absence of the student voice. And so we wanted to make a commitment to making sure that the student voice was embedded from the very beginning. In my other hat uh, at the Second Chance Educational Alliance, um, we have been able to offer programming to about close to 100 uh, men who are incarcerated in the state of Connecticut. There's only one women's facility in the state and it is unfortunately like an hour and some change away from where we are headquartered and so um and they also and this is this is interesting they so it's far um and kind of prohibitive for some of my volunteers to drive there but when we had someone who was interested in teaching a course there we were told that they had enough programs that there was enough education I was like, oh, I didn't know that that was a real thing. Um, so, so that's um, so. Second Chance is you know now only in uh, adult male facilities, and we offer post-secondary level classes, not for credit. We are trying to get credit, but that requires a level of partnerships um, and spending some money that we don't currently have um, to get those things done. And so for anyone who would like to donate, the website is www.scea-inc.org. There's a donate button on the page. Thank you very much. Section shock with everybody. <laughs> so in, in addition to the teaching that I do, um, I'm working on, on two uh, one statewide project as it relates to uh, higher education in prison and then one national project. The national project is called States of Incarceration and is part of the Humanities Action Lab out of Rutgers University. And um, for that, uh, States Incarceration looks at mass incarceration um, nationally and in each partner, whether it's a college or a university, interrogates a um, an issue of mass incarceration that's relevant to their community. And then, so my uh, topic then is higher education in prison because my campus is just 20 miles from a, a, a state maximum security. And these two state institutions have never had a, a partnership, an education partnership of any kind. And so I, with my class, we're looking at, you know, how can SUNY Plattsburgh and um, Clinton Correctional Facility partner? So what would a partnership, in other words, look like between these two state institutions? And then the other project is with the um, with SUNY system, the State University of New York system that my college is one of 64 campuses of. And um, SUNY and um, CUNY, which is the City University of New York, and the Rockefeller Institute for Government got a, um, a Mellon grant to a Mellon planning grant to look at ways to increase higher education opportunities for people incarcerated in New York State and for people who are coming out of prison. And so my role on that is as the project coordinator. And um, as part of that, I have to um, uh, coordinate um, different focus groups across in different parts of the state of people who are um, administering programs in prisons and people who want to start programs and how can SUNY then get back into the prison education game. Mm -hmm. So those are two two projects that I'm working on now. Yes. Oh, the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I'm writing a book. <laughs> How could I forget? Because it's driving me crazy right now um, on higher education in women's prisons. 
And it's, it really is, is an extension and a revision of my dissertation on the same topic. So for the dissertation, I, I wrote about the experiences of people who teach inside women's facilities. And so now I'm adding voices of formerly incarcerated women who started their education inside and are now finishing on the outside. Girls, that I mean, you about to interview me, huh? Yeah. Won't he do it? Won't he do it? Look, won't he do it? Yes. <laughs> Um, so Operation Restoration in New Orleans, we do so many things, um, but as it relates to education, we currently provide a high set, which is a GD program for the community. So women who have been incarcerated or have contact with the justice system who still don't have um, a GD, we try to remove as many barriers as possible for the women to be able to complete that. So we provide transportation, childcare, snacks, a scholarship to pay for the test when they're ready. Um, what, transportation, childcare, snacks, the money. Oh, we also provide clothing as well. So we have a closet that's tied into the clinic, um, but any formerly incarcerated woman can come in and get clothes. But just making sure that everybody feels the way that they need to feel while they are starting on their journey. So that's one. On the higher education side, we have a partnership with Tulane University um, in New Orleans where we go inside of the women's prison and we teach college courses. We um, have been fortunate enough to get tuition waivers for all of those women who are students in the program. We're getting ready to start our third semester and we'll be adding a cohort um, fall, the second cohort of women in the fall. Um, we have a really awesome relationship with Department of Corrections in Louisiana, so they really help facilitate different things, and we're exploring all of the opportunities on how to um, expand the program, but we are in the process of building it into a Bachelor of Arts and Philosophy. So that is what we're working on in the higher education space. Um, we do a lot of policy work. So in 2016, Louisiana became the first state to ban the box on college applications. So what that m meant was is that college applications, from my personal experience, when I applied to go to school, I pulled up the college application, had to check the box that I had been incarcerated or I had a felony. And um, I was denied the opportunity to go to school. So. Once I finished college and uh, progressed in my life, we went back and we wrote legislation to remove the box off of public post-secondary um, institutions in Louisiana, making Louisiana the first state to do it. We've been able to successfully do it in Maryland, in the state of Washington, and now we are expanding out. We have um, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Utah, California, New York, so we're working in multiple states to also remove it on the state level. On the federal level, I've been working really hard on the First Step Act um, that President Trump endorsed yesterday. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, but just put it out there in the universe. Um, and really excited about the relief that it'll bring to people who are in the inside. And it also allows for educational opportunities for people who are incarcerated in a federal system to receive credit for the education courses that they have been taking. Um, so, I mean, we do legislative work, we do all kinds of stuff. So my website for the organization is www.or-nola.org. You can also go on there to donate, but you can also, the unique thing about the website is you can hit contact us and we do respond, but we work with organizations that are similar and have like minds across this country. So even if you're in Texas, you're in California, you're in New York, and you need help with finding resources in your community, we have partner organizations on the website that are not just 
to Louisiana. We have a part on the website where you could shop formerly incarcerated women. So formerly incarcerated women who have businesses and sell things or seasonings, authors, you can go online and buy the books there. And then we'll also just connect you to services in your area. So I want to learn more about like you guys personally and your personal passions and how that well, I mean, because I mean we're a whole people. We don't just Oh, wine. My bad. <laughs> passion. Well, wine is an absolutely perfect passion. But um, you know, just kind of what what experiences, what interests, what things led you to do this work, this hard work, this difficult work, this work that you're faced with countless obstacles and people telling you that it's not worthwhile. Um, or worthy of time and money and resources and attention. What is it that draws you to it? Why is it so important to you? All right, when, when people ask me that question, I, I always half jokingly say that prison is my family's business. It's just that the, the business is making money off the family and, instead of the other way around. And so um, I have a brother who is 26 years into a life sentence in Pennsylvania, a nephew who is probably coming up on 20 years himself, um, serving life sentences. Um, my father was formerly incarcerated, my brother-in-law, my sister, and so it, it has impacted my family um, deeply. And so I just, I really just wanted to learn more about this system that impacts so many families like mine. And that was really the, uh, the impetus for me setting off on this journey. It wasn't ever anything that I had planned to do, um, but as we know about plans, right? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and so then what keeps me going is, is, is my family is, and it's, it, you know, because I, sometimes I, I feel, I feel helpless in, um, being able to, you know, um, to help my, to help my family in their situations. And so for me, it's, you know, this is a way that I, I can help it, you know, if I can help other people, maybe in some way I can help my family too. But it's just that just knowing what people inside um, experience is, is, you know, and then what they're, more importantly, what their families experience because families do time as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, that's why I do it. <laughs> so like Bria, I do have a, a family connection to incarceration. So I have an uncle who is serving uh, a life sentence for double homicide in Florida. And I have a cousin uh, who did 12 years in Connecticut. And then when he was out for a little bit, um, he took his life mm -hmm. just because the transition was so difficult. And I don't believe in any way that he was properly equipped to handle that transition. Um, I think part of it was also the particular nature of his conviction, so it was a sexual offense. And so I think that as far as stigma goes, particularly around conviction crimes, I think that those convicted of sexual offenses have a particular challenge when returning to their communities. And so the co-founder of Second Chance Educational Alliance is also formerly incarcerated. I have a variety of friends and family members who are in and have been in various stages of carceral supervision. And so it is something that has always been 
part of just like my sphere of knowledge, but had also been kind of distant enough where, you know, it was very much out of sight, out of mind, where I didn't have to think about it or, or see it. And I think with my cousin's passing, it became that much realer to me just because of the conversations that he and I had, you know, when he was out and trying to get him into school and, and running into the problems of his parole parameters, uh, his probation parameters, um, and just having these conversations about what he had access to, what he didn't have access to inside the correctional facility in Connecticut. And so he really helped spur me on this journey. I think the other piece that we know, we talk about kind of serendipity and things happening despite your best laid plans. I happened to literally be on Facebook one day and saw the Bard Prison debate team had defeated Harvard. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is the most wonderful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And not because I didn't believe that there were people who were incarcerated that could demolish Harvard, <laughs> But which they did. But what was intriguing to me was that, you know, when we think about institutions that have access to essentially unlimited resources, mm -hmm. Harvard is certainly one of those institutions where it's just money after money after money after resource after resource. And so I was like, there has to be something. If there is a team of debaters with no access to internet, no access to resources at their fingertips, the same way that these college students had it, there's something to this. And so I think, you know, Antonio's situation, that's my cousin's name, Antonio's situation combined with just sort of landing on Facebook on that day just sort of led me, led me down this path. And, you know, it's at the point now where I feel most comfortable inside the prison classroom teaching because I feel like there's a, there's a personal connection that I'm able to make, an impact that I'm able to have, that I'm not sure, I mean, if I'm being honest, that I'm not sure I have um, at IHEP, and I, I think that the work we do is important, but I, I just, I don't have the person-to-person -person, um, interaction that the classroom provides me. And so, you know, I'm passionate about education. I'm a teacher by training. My aunt has like 8,000 master's degrees. She taught in New York for far over 20 years. And so it's just something that has run in my family, um, at least on my father's side. So, so it's all of those different things just kind of put together. Also, I like Hershey bars. <laughs> So for me, it's a long, like long term and send in the short term. Short term, I do it because I remember all of the women that I left behind. So in the nine years that I was literally raised in prison, because I was 19 when I went in, and all of the amazing, awesome women that I got to know and became family, and some of them acted as mothers and grandmothers and sisters because I didn't have that family component on the inside. So I have met some of the most amazing and most influential women in my life, and they're still in prison. So every day I get up is because when I sleep at night, I think about them. When I wake up in the morning, I think about them. So my drive and motivating factor, I feel like for some of them it's life or death, and I'm responsible for making sure that they get the hell up out of prison. So that's why I do what I do short term. That's, that's, that's the fire that fuels me short term. Secondly, long term, there's, a, there's something that I always reference. I had the opportunity to go back to the um, African American History Museum, you know, the Smithsonian 
opened. And what struck me the most in that exhibit was the Emmett Till exhibit. And it wasn't the casket. It wasn't, you know, what that room represented. It was the quotes on the wall from his mother. So, like, for me, I grew up in a middle-class, high middle-class family. My mom was a judge, you know. Um, when I went to prison, I had a Benz at 15. So material-wise, I had everything that I wanted or needed. So, you know, the normal socioeconomic background, that wasn't why. You know, that wasn't my story, my way into prison. But what was is trauma. So that, that tells you, like, at, you know, my first encounter with physical violence, I was three. I saw my dad punch my mom in the stomach. She was pregnant. And then I had violence then perpetuated upon me by the time I was four. And love my dad to death, most amazing person. He has come full circle. But what happened was he grew up in an abusive household where his dad was fighting his mom, which is the way of the culture of how we grew up that the black men take their rage out on their wives or whatever the case may be. And then by the time he was nine or 10, his dad drowned on the river for work. So his mom was a widow with seven children and she was 33, you know? So it's a lot of circumstances and really just understanding why we continue the cycles of violence. But I was a young, angry teenager, so that's how I ended up in prison. And then being sexually assaulted at 16, it just compounded the things that you go through when you're growing up, which is common to the, the, the black women. We just don't talk about it because we told we not to talk about it. We have trauma associated with money and, I mean, just all these different things that are passed down to us generation after generation. But the quote that always stand, stood out to me was... Um, she said the murder of her son has shown her that what happens to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all. Because when you stand up and you say that this doesn't affect me, it's not that it doesn't affect you. It just hasn't hit you yet. It's not that it won't. It just hasn't made it to you yet. So what are you going to do to be invested in stopping it? So for me, my investment is in my son. I know the statistics say that. Uh, a woman who's been in prison, her children have a higher propensity to go to prison. If you're raising your child and you're a single parent, that's even higher. But I'd be damned. <laughs> My child's not going to be a statistic, you know? And I'm invested in making sure that the lives of children who have been impacted by incarceration in whatever way, because my son wasn't even around. But the collateral consequences of a choice that I made at 19, like I'm still paying probation and parole fees. I'm still paying restitution. You know, and just all of these different things that happened because of my incarceration that 20 years later, my seven-year-old son is still paying for. So I'm invested in, even though it hasn't touched him yet, 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 I got to keep saying that. So while we out here and we're living in these bubbles and we're thinking that Oh, it couldn't happen to me. I'm sitting here in this chair, and I'm telling you, it definitely can. So I reached back. I was a freshman at Xavier University, and my major was physics and engineering when I went to prison, full scholarship. I go back, and I talk to these girls who are freshmen in college because some of them, that's the first time they are out of the grasp of their parents. And people think love is not a choice. It is. It's a choice. It's just who you're going to choose to love more, yourself or that man or that man or the woman or whatever it is that you, you know, whatever floats your boat is fine. No judgment in this zone. 
at all. I just, I'm not politically correct all the time, so I just be needing help with that type of stuff. But all I'm saying is, is that really going back and speaking to them and talking to them and telling them that who you associate with, what kind of car you're sitting in at what particular time. You know, and in New Orleans, the men in the community, they knew when freshmen, new freshmen moved in the dorm, they was lined up out there because they want to talk to these young girls and pray on these young girls and all of this type of stuff. So I feel like on every campus in America, there should be a freshman orientation about getting caught up. They need that type of education. You know what I mean? So for me, it, and then once I start talking to them, talking, I, we adopted a, um, a school, alternative school in Louisiana. Talk about school to prison pipeline. They have the kids all in one room. The youngest was nine. The oldest is 17. They're in there with ankle monitors, put out of school for the rest of the year. No plans, no behavioral plans, no um, success plans to get them back reintegrated and acclimated back into the class. They feed them out of styrofoam plates. They can't go outside for recess. And every girl that's back there is what has been molested or currently being molested. And you have them sitting in this room on their way to prison. You know, so when we talk about why we do what we do, that's why I do what I do, because it just, it affects us all, whether we want to talk about it or not. Thank you guys so much for um, being willing to come and chat with me for a little while and for sharing yourselves and your work with our audience. Um, I'm going to, I have one last question um, that I think will be a, a good way to kind of close this out. Um, so I'm just gonna say, let's say that one of our listeners is incarcerated or formerly incarcerated uh, woman. What message would you want to share with her? <laughs> this is Sarita again. <laughs> um, it, it's two things that I want to share that I wish someone had shared with me. I didn't know that they had people outside of my family that cared about me. And that were on the outside fighting for my liberation and fighting for things to change. Like, I, I didn't know that existed. So I wanna say one, sis, we out here fighting for you. We out here fighting for you. Don't have to know you, love you just the same. That's number one. Number two, um, I was really afraid when I was released because I never heard the positive stories. And you have to think that that's a reason why, because they don't want you to think that you can get out and be successful. So positive stories were never brought back into the prison. The only thing that was brought back into the prison was people who had just left 30 days prior that I knew were going to be successful, and they were back in 30 days. So I was afraid that when I was released, even with the support system that I had and the intelligence that I had and the resources that I had, I did not think that I could make it because I didn't know anybody who did. Everybody was back. You know, recidivism is so high. So letting you know that you can do it because there are so many of us out here who have done it and we are working on bringing the positive stories into the prison currently because I know what it feels like to be afraid and to think that you can't do it, but that's not the case. So those would be the two things that I would want to say. Um, and I would say that we are lifting as we climb. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. We need that on a t-shirt. Yes. And, and so in, in the same way that our ancestors had our backs, we got your backs as well. Sis, you're going to come into a community 
because we here and we have to be here. We have to support each other. You know, Sarita is 100% correct when she talks about society telling us there can be only one. Like, we're not the Highlander yeah. out here. It's, it's not about there can be only one. There has to be more than one in order for this work to get done. Sarita can't do it all herself. Bria can't do it all herself. I can't do it all myself. All the other women in the struggle, we can't do this by ourselves. And so there's a community of people out here, a community of women, a community of black women, and we are here and we are working. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite people in the whole world, in the whole world is Bishop T.D. Jakes. And I went to a conference. Yeah, name, yes, I do. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I do. So, but one of the, I went to a conference in July and he said something that has, it was like a paradigmatic shift in my life, right? Um, and it was to Sarita's initial point about that notion that there can only be one. And he said, something happens when women get together. And it was so simple, but it kind of like punched me in my stomach because like you, so many of us really believe that, you know, there's not enough out here for everybody to have cheese on their burger. Like we all out here fighting for one slice of cheese when in fact there is enough cheese and there is space for all. It's so much. I mean, it's so much. Exactly. And we can have whatever kind of cheese we want. And if we get together in community instead of competition, then we not only maximize our individual impact, but our collective impact will change the whole wide world because black women save the world anyway. Right. Black women save the world anyway. But when we stop and cut out all this petty, petty mess. Exactly. Not only saved it, we birthed it. But yeah, this is what Getting Grown is all about. This is what, um, you know, Teen Type of Fast, the things that we're doing is trying to really cultivate this community. And I want to make sure that, you know, women of all backgrounds and experiences and, and um, traumas and pain and privileges and gifts and all of that are in that community as well. So I want to thank you guys again for coming and sharing and um, with the Getting Grown family. And y'all are always welcome at the kitchen table. <laughs> thank y'all so much. Yes, snacks and wine. Today's sponsor, Ulta Beauty, believes that beauty is limitless. Ulta Beauty celebrates the possibilities in each and every person and the notion that everyone has the potential to be whatever and whoever they want to be. That's why Ulta Beauty offers every guest the total beauty experience. Discover a world of beautiful possibilities with over 20,000 of the best products across makeup, fragrance, hair care, and skin care. Choose from over 500 of your favorite brands like Tarte, Morphe, Living Proof, and so much more. From everyday favorites to the brands you love to splurge on, you can truly find it all. And explore even more possibilities with hair, skin, and brow services on site to meet your needs and your lifestyle. All with Ulta Beauty experts to help you look and feel your best. Now, everybody who knows me knows that there's one thing that I love, and that's a beat face. That's and right. I can go to Ulta and get all of my needs met. And for the Lolo, beauty and discovering makeup has really uh, helped me to kind of work through some of my own insecurities and celebrate the parts of my face that I used to not love, love as much. So I think um, I really align with Ulta's message about uh, beauty being limitless and that, you know, we are often socialized and conditioned to think, think that it has to be one thing or everyone who's pretty has to look one way. But that happens to be a big 
crap of malarkey. Um, and Ulta Beauty is, <laughs> is in total agreement. So you can go there and get whatever you need to look however you want and be fantastic and fabulous while doing so. Amen. So whether you're ready to run the town or rock your look or tell your story, Ulta Beauty is here to help you show it to the world. Because Ulta Beauty knows you're not here to get beautiful, you're here because you already are beautiful. Visit Ulta.com. That's U-L-T-A dot com to learn more and find a store near you. Ulta Beauty. The possibilities are beautiful. This week's episode is also brought to you by Care Of. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Just take Care Of's fun online quiz, which asks you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, and find out in five minutes what vitamins and supplements that you specifically need. Then your vitamins will get delivered right to your door in personalized, easy-to-remember daily packs, perfect for a busy, on-the-go lifestyle. Vegan and vegetarian supplement options are available to match your dietary needs as well, and your monthly subscription box can easily be modified at any time. You all know how much Kia and I love care of. On the top of the fact that we are always gone and we're able to grab our vitamins on the go, right. um, it's just so convenient to have them mailed directly to my door. I couldn't ask for anything better. I don't have to go anywhere and pick anything up. It's just right. so convenient. And on top of that, it comes into a super cute pack of everything that I need. It doesn't require a lot of bottles, a lot of throwaway. It's literally just, you just take your pack of vitamins and keep going. And there's always like a little inspirational quote on the back of each pack, which I think is mm -hmm. super cute. So for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit takecareof.com and enter grown. That's takecareof.com and enter code grown for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. Honestly, Truly. All right, it's time for the honesty box. Let's go ahead and get right on into it. We're going to call this listener Renee. Okay. Hello, my beautiful aunties, Jade and Kia. First of all, I just want to recognize you both for the great amount of culture and laughter you provide to me once a week. I'm truly blessed. <laughs> my name is Renee, and I am right. a 24-year-old entrepreneur, professional African dancer, mother of a six-year-old, that's going on 75. I know the feeling. And a loving husband that supports me and will do anything to ensure I remain happy. Nice. Um, <clears throat> I'm writing in today because I've always had a difficult time as an adult battling my relationship with my mother, who once upon a time cared and raised all five of her kids until the time I hit seventh grade and she just stopped raising us. We were never completely abandoned, but after the story of how dysfunctional things begin, you'll question a lot, but I'll give you a backstory. My mother had five children with four different baby's fathers and has obviously had some baby father issues in the past. When I was in seventh grade, she met a man who had six children of his own and occasionally brought them around to visit. Um, so she was, you know, she the mother didn't care for uh, the man spending the night at her home, you know, because she was being cautious. So she would go and spend the night at his house um, to keep them safe. Well, a few nights of sleeping at his house turned into every night with him. She would come to her house only to drop off sandwich meat, bread, and frozen food to ensure we never went hungry and left for the night to spend the night with her boyfriend to feed him hot home-cooked meals while leaving us alone to raise ourselves through the night. This uh, of hers took place from the time I was there all the way to my younger brother who just graduated high school last year. With all that alone time, it's really no question as to how I became a teen mother at the age of 18, right? One month having my son, I temporarily stayed uh, in my mom's house and my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, stayed with me to pitch in and help out with our newborn. Mm -hmm. 
long story short, uh, long story short, her boyfriend had an issue with my boyfriend helping out. So my mom tried to force him out and being the ride or die, I left with him. Fast forward to now, five years later, I have friends and family who do an amazing job at supporting me and my hubby when we need it. But my mother does not call to check in on my son, nor does she spend time with him. And a few months back, she asked what his middle name was. Sorry for the long backstory, but I need y'all to understand my struggle with her. Every time a holiday comes up is the only time I see her. And she's ultra fake with the hugs and I love you babies and laughs as if she's played the mother role our entire life. I honestly want to cut her off because my family has always vocalized my issues with her from the past and present. And she's shown she doesn't care enough to be active in our lives. How do I live life and enjoy family gatherings when I can't stand to be around her around holidays with her fake love? Blood is not thicker than water, and I refuse to allow her, ha as half a mother and grandmother's duties hurt my family. Your thoughts, ladies, warmest regards. Love, Renee. Um, and then I want to also say that this email is titled, I Don't Think I Love My Mother. So, um, sis, do you have some words for Renee? Um, I honestly, I hope you don't think I'm just being flippant or dismissive, Renee, because I actually am very, you know, I, I care about you and your well-being. You sound like you've been dealing with quite a lot. Um, I was just going to suggest that you uh, very quickly find somebody to talk to about this, someone who is a professional mm -hmm. and someone who um, could really help you to kind of manage you know, and think through all of the things that you've shared with us and mm -hmm. figure out a plan for how to move forward. Yep. Um, this is something that is, you know, a lot, this is, there's a lot of history here and a lot of background. And I wouldn't want to just casually tell you uh, what I would do or what I think you would do, because I feel like there's a lot more at, st at stake here. And, um, if I, if, but, but, you know, if, if it were me, I think I would want somebody to tell me <laughs> what I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. Um, just because I feel like it would be, um, just in your best interest. And if you want to think about healing from this so that you can not have to worry about managing this and how, and, and making sure that none of these issues negatively impact your family like your husband and your child mm -hmm. um but this is this is a lot to deal with and i'm extremely sorry that this is something that you've had to to face i will say that you know we don't get to choose our parents um and that's that's just one of those unfortunate facts of life but i do believe that um life has a way its own way may not be the most comfortable or convenient way, but I believe that life has a way of, of giving us access to what we need when we need it. So I, it's my prayer that, um, you know, what I have to say will prompt you to kind of seek out, um, some assistance from a, from, from a professional, someone that you, that you trust. I agree. You took the words out of my mouth. Um, I I wanted I wanted this honesty box because I wanted her to know that you know her feelings are validated but she definitely should seek some some professional help. You know, this is a this is a this is a big one, you know, and 
having a professional there to help you to figure out how to cope with that. Um, as well as dealing with, you know, as well as you dealing with your family and not carrying that with you. And like Kia said, being able to move forward, I think that's the best, the best thing that we can tell you to do is to try to seek some professional help. So, uh, we wish you but kudos all. to you also kudos, kudos to you for recognizing that there, that, you know, you're in a situation that you don't want to be in and Absolutely. making some, some, some sort of effort to get out of it. So I know that that probably takes a lot of courage. It probably took a lot of courage for you to share, um, you know, what you've been dealing with for Absolutely. the bulk of your life. So I want to commend you for that and let you know that you're always safe to do that at the kitchen table and we're 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 never going to um like you said like shrug it off or dismiss this or treat it like something that's not that that's any less important than it really is um and like i said i hope you don't think that we're just you know telling you this to get you out out of out of our hair but we really believe that um seeking some 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 help from a professional is is the best thing to do I agree. I 100% agree. So um, all of our love is with you, Renee. And, you know, keep us updated. But we really, really hope that you're able to able to get that help for sure. Absolutely. We'll be praying for you, sis. Keep in yes. touch. Please. And we can move along now to the petty peeves. And I want to be very responsible of the things I say to my sister. Because everybody know I can be real petty. P-E to the T-T-Y. So, you know, uh, I've been traveling. Thank mm-hmm. thank the Lord for opportunities. But, you know, traveling is, is, a, is a, it's a test of your faith and patience. Um, yes, and my faith and my patience have been tested. I will say this. I don't know. I might. So it, it so that being said, it, it definitely pertains to flying and etiquette on a plane, as we've so discussed. Um, <laughs> but this one, I feel like, you know, so yesterday I had a very long travel day and it was really, really nerve wracking. And to add insult to injury um, during my final flight back to D.C., I was seated next to a young lady I don't know if she was suffering from a cold or allergies, but I literally counted every 12 seconds. She was sniffling like a very long <laughs> and wet sniffle. And Aww. I, and I felt like she could have totally eradicated the problem by just blowing her nose. But every 12 seconds, mm. like clockwork, she sniffed. And I was just looking at her like, ma'am, I do not want to hear the contents of your nose. For the full duration of this flight. And it was just, it was maddening. It was maddening. And here I am trying to watch Frozen on the plane. And I'm turning it up (laughs) to, you know, the top volume. So I won't have to hear this young young lady snot. And she was just acting like it just didn't bother her. But like literally every 12 seconds. If you follow me on Insta stories, you will see that I recorded it. (laughs) I recorded it for posterity because I knew that you niggas would not believe me if I told you that every 12 seconds, this girl was sniffling. And I mean, it was just like, ma'am. And and the other lady, I was really bound because the other lady on the other side of me, and we talked about this last week or the week before, Mm-hmm. ordered a tomato juice now you know i can't take it when y'all sit there and drink that marinara sauce and i got to smell it 
I don't want to smell it. I feel like I feel like tomato juice should not be available on airplanes because it's such a pungent odor and it just p- busts you in your face. This lady is over here burping prego, and I can't. I cannot concentrate. I cannot have any peace because you know on one side of me I'm dealing with this young lady and her nose, and the other side of me I'm this lady is literally drinking cocktail sauce, and I'm I am pissed <laughs> because my senses are just overloaded with the inconsideration of the people that are around me. And that's really all I have to say. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just upset. I'm still upset. I'm still mad. Yes, I am. I'm dying because it's <sighs> hilarious. Ugly. It's so ugly and stupid. <laughs> you I know hate what's ugly it. and stupid is whatever's happening outside right now. Agreed. God damn. Well, um... You know, my petty peeves this week um, are for those who cast judgment on, you know, the cannabis. Oh, dear God. Do absolutely no research around it. Okay. Now, it is not, um, it is absolutely fine. I am never going to be a peer pressure type of person. That's just not even my personality. But, uh, it's fine if you choose not to indulge in certain things, if you, you know, if it's not for you. But if you are not informed on said subject, then do not treat it as if it is crack <laughs> or heroin or any of the or any of the sort. Like just don't speak on it at all. Don't say anything about it if you don't know what you are talking about. So, that's my petty peeve this week. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I don't really care what you do with your personal time or your life. I don't. But you're not going to come at me like I'm David Ruffin, you know, with my with my personal spoon and my own pipe. You're not going to do that. Like that's just not that's just not what we're going to do. Is this coming from a place of concern? Um, it could be coming from a place of concern. It's a very terrible communication, but it could be coming from a place of concern. However, you, you must research things and read into them and look into them. Uh, if you're so concerned, you can't be concerned about things and not want to know anything about them. At least be well-informed. That's all I'm saying. All right. Okay. Not, not the most entertaining of petty peeves, but it is what is on my heart. <laughs> so. <laughs> you, can, you can do whatever you like. Thank you so much, sis. You're I greatly welcome. appreciate you. And that is another episode of Getting Grown. It certainly is. We do appreciate your, you guys for continuing to tune in and listen and support this this show for and then, you know as as we are still trying to figure out exactly what it is and <laughs> but we are just elated and overjoyed that week after week you just keep checking back to see what we're talking about thank you for joining us at the kitchen table we really can't tell you how much fun we have absolutely and also we hope that a good portion of you because i know it's not everybody and there's going to be somebody in retail who's going to pop up 
and tell me about their nine-hour shift that they have to work on Thursday. However, (laughs) I hope that a good majority of you have a short work week this week and that you get to eat lots of delicious fattening foods and that you keep your struggle plates off of Instagram, which I know that many will not abide by. But I mean, and I, I also hope- want to say, I, oh, yes, I'm sorry. No, please. I also want to admonish you. I should have brought this up during the trash segment. But I also want to admonish each of you to endeavor to eat a green vegetable. Oh, my gosh. Two, please. But because one will suffice. I, I was on Twitter for very briefly today, but I saw someone had posted a video that Boosie, Boosie had posted a video of his pantry and his refrigerator. Mm. And I have never seen so much MSG and <laughs> red dye 50 in all of my days. And he was, he was just going on and on. He was going on and on in the video talking about how my, ch- my children eat good. We eat good. My children don't tell me my children don't eat. And it was nothing in that pantry but Swiss Miss. And Rice Krispie Treats. (laughs) And he was just going on. I mean, I actually paused the video to be Mm. sure. But there was not one green Mm. vegetable. I can't get behind it. In the refrigerator or like not one. Not one. Not one in the fridge? Not one in the refrigerator. There was nothing nothing raw in the refrigerator. Not even greens? I, there was no canned there, there was no canned vegetables. It was literally wow. snacks and cereal, peanut butter, mm. and a Protein. bunch of like Minute Maid do, the dollar juices from Minute Maid. Oh wow, I'm just a whole gang of them. <laughs> it was like some chicken, and you know a host of sugary beverages and Absolutely. sweet treats and candy. And I was just like at whoop point like what in the silver caps like these children their teeth <laughs> will rot their teeth will rot it's like Nigga and Wonka. i just <laughs> i just want you all i don't know how we as a people have gotten away from encouraging our uh the youth to eat vegetables <laughs> i know we're in this age where we just let young people do whatever the heck they want but as parents and guardians we are obligated to ensure that you know, the children are healthy. <laughs> yeah. You can't be out here with little Charlie in the chocolate factory. Like, it don't I work mean, like that. <laughs> all, I mean, it was just so, it was everything in the refrigerator and the pantry was processed. No. Like, the only person, someone tweeted me back and said that they too kind of paused it and was searching. And she was like, the only thing close to a green vegetable that she saw was a jar of pickles. And that is unacceptable. <laughs> it's unacceptable. <laughs> it is not okay. And I don't care. We're going to get emails and all kinds of mean comments telling me that I'm being harsh and judgmental. But say what you want. The children need green vegetables. Getting grown is getting grown. And we're just trying to ensure that we all have moving bowels out here. Like, you know, in the the words of of our good sis who sent us that very loving email that we spoke about last week. (laughs) <laughs> do better. <laughs> exactly. We've got to do better as a people because we just cannot gestational diabetes and juvenile diabetes. It's just these are real problems, guys. In the words of Huey, a la boondocks. 
Soul Food was about a grandmother and a family that ate fattening food. And the grandmother got diabetes and got her leg chopped off. And then the family went back to eating the same food that killed Big Mama. So we say all of that to say, eat some vegetables, please. <laughs> That's it. I mean... Just do that. No beige plates. No beige plates. No I'm beige plates. I'm actually cooking three green vegetables. I'm making... Now, the Brussels sprouts probably will no longer have any nutritional value because I'm adding um, maple and shallots and apple and pancetta to them. Hmm. But I'm also making a green bean and a collard green. So... Whew. There'll be two and a half green if vegetables. If I don't... There. Yeah. I'm not going to... I'm, I'm not going to cook like a meal meal mm-hmm. but i do believe that i might take my talents to the store and get myself some greens and some turkey necks because i deserve you d- sis i, I deserve that turkey necks today to put in my greens and so i feel like that if i if i don't i, I won't prepare a full thanksgiving meal because uh we're going out of town yeah. but uh yeah guys i'm just gonna be bloated on the plane because definitely cooking like seven seven starches <laughs> And four vegetables, two meats, and multiple desserts. So, it's lit, and Kia and I will be in St. Lucia this weekend getting yeah. all of our, our life and rest. Which probably means that our show will, next week will probably be a little late, but be patient with us. Yeah, We are just you know taking a break. Yes, indeed. We're going to take a little break, but we'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming very, 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 very soon. In the words of Steve Urkel, absolutely. So... <laughs> um, make sure you guys in the meantime because winter time winter has come it's not even coming it's come make sure you are moisturizing your skin that's right and uh, minding your business and never failing to drink your water because your black is going to crack if it's dry absolutely goodbye goodbye discover a world of beautiful possibilities at Ulta Beauty Shop over 20,000 of the best products across makeup, fragrance, hair care, and skin care from your favorite brands like Tarte, Morphe, Living Proof, and so much more. And explore even more possibilities with hair, skin, or brow services, all with experts to help you look and feel your best. Because Ulta Beauty knows you're not here to get beautiful, you're here because you already are. Visit Ulta.com to find a store near you. Ulta Beauty, the possibilities are beautiful. Let's do it in the morning. Sweet breeze in the summertime. See your sweet face. <laughs> All laid up next to mine. Yes. I love a good growl. <laughs>